0: You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. Christian Babcock the host of the Hunters Advantage podcast and what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. This week on the podcast I'm joined by Jay Scott So, Jay, why don't you just start out by uh, introducing yourself to the listeners and, you know, maybe give us a little brief uh, description of what you do.
1: Yeah, sounds good, Christian. Um, I have been a professional hunting guide in the state of Arizona and kind of the southwest for probably, well, since 1997. So uh, that puts me at 22 years. Uh, I I reside in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I went to school at Arizona State. I grew up in Arizona Uh, I guide for elk, uh, bighorn sheep, uh, goulds turkey, coos deer, uh, a bunch of different animals in Arizona. I also have a guiding operation in Sonora, Mexico, where we do coos deer hunts and goulds turkey hunts. Uh, I've been doing that since 1997 as well. Uh, I just finished my 21st season down in Mexico uh, chasing uh, coos deer during the rut in January. And then uh, in the fall... Uh, as of a couple of years ago, I actually don't guide elk hunters in Arizona much anymore. I spend most of my time from September 1st to, uh, mid-November in Colorado at the Ott Six Ranch where I'm the hunt manager. It's a, a private ranch owned by a family and, um, we don't do any public hunts, just, uh, hunts for
0: the family. Okay. That's awesome. That sounds like you stay pretty busy with it all then.
1: Yeah, and I've got my podcast. I started uh, J. Scott Outdoors podcast in February of 2015 uh, and uh, you know, just started from scratch, and I think I'm 567 episodes in. Uh, I've had over 25 million downloads, and um, it's been
0: a huge success, and it uh, takes up a lot of my time, but I enjoy it. Maybe we could start out by talking about uh, your Goulds turkey season i uh, i that was so interesting to keep up with on your instagram it seemed like you guys were having a lot of fun down there i'm used to just hunting rios and like it just seems like you guys had like a plethora of birds you guys were hunting down there
1: well um the reality is you guys in texas and oklahoma probably have more birds when it comes to numbers but the properties we hunt are completely private and we are the only people that hunt them uh so most of our setups that we have on the birds are, we are pretty efficient with you know, the videoing and the calling and getting the birds uh, to come in and, and, you know, uh, having a successful hunt. Uh, They don't get any pressure at all. Nobody calls at them all year long until we show up. So, uh, you know, when the word dumb turkey comes up, uh, these turkeys are definitely on the not as bright side, which I'll take any dumb turkey all day long. Um, (laughs) They, you know, they love to strut. They love to gobble. I've been guiding Gould's Turkey Hunters full-time since 2010. And, uh, I think we took over 60 birds this year, uh, on 15 different properties and just had, had a ball. Yeah. That's awesome. So what,
0: have you hunted a lot of Rios or Easterns?
1: Uh, I've never hunted Easterns at all. Um, I have hunted Merriam's a lot. I've hunted, uh, Rios in Texas and in California, uh, and uh, I had not gotten the Osceola in Florida, and I have not gotten the Eastern, but uh, I've turkey hunted probably for the last 20 20 some years, uh, extensively all spring, and I consider myself somewhat of a turkey nut for sure.
0: Yeah, so what would you say the the main differences are, you know, going south of the border hunting a Goulds versus a Maryam or a Rio?
1: Well, when you take the birds themselves, the goulds stand taller. Um, they also have 20 primary feathers, where most birds have 19. So they have one extra primary feather. Uh, I believe the primary feathers t- to be on most birds are probably five inches longer than the Rio Grande turkey. They're probably three to four inches longer than the Merriam's. Um, you know, they love to come in full strut. Uh, they have a all the hunters that come hunt with me all say it's the biggest track they've ever seen. So, you know, their, their feet are big, they stand tall. Uh, most birds only weigh between 20 and 22 pounds. Uh, but, you know, they're a real showy bird. Uh, they're, they're pretty easy to call in. And, you know, you can call in, uh, you know, whole flocks of birds where, you know, like hunting a Rio or a Merriam, sometimes when they get henned up, they can get pretty tough. Goulds typically, in general, are a real user-friendly bird, and that's why I like to hunt them. Uh, most people that come hunt with me, they're trying to complete their royal or their world slam. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, you've got the Rio Grande, the Osceola, the Eastern, the Merriams, uh, and then you add the Goulds to that. That's that's the royal slam, and then a lot of people have already gone down and gotten the oscillated, which is the sixth turkey, making the world slam. So most everybody that comes out to hunt with us uh want to either complete the royal slam or their world slam
0: so are these are a lot of your clients wanting to come and is this like a semi-guided thing for like fully guided fully
1: guided yeah we do most all of the calling um and they come most of them like i said uh just come and they want to check that bird off the list uh because of its proximity or where it is in mexico Um, you know the birds cost me more if I told you what I paid for birds it'd blow your mind Um, so that you know the hunt isn't cheap um, and they're coming quite a ways to come get the birds so it's it's a lot of times it's more just coming to get the Gould's turkey to complete the royal or the world slam it's not just to come on a turkey hunt although I do have some people that Most everybody that leaves our turkey hunt say it's the best turkey hunt they've ever been on, and a lot of that is just because the birds never get called, and if you watch any of the videos um, on my website or on my Instagram, you'll see they're just unbelievable birds.
0: Now, did you guys, I I think it was you that said something about, what's your success rate on a Gould's turkey hunt?
1: Well, we've had a 100% success rate up until this year. We actually had a couple guys this year that did not uh, get their birds, which just, uh, breaks my heart. Uh, I will say that all, everyone that hunted, well, I shouldn't even go there. Uh, we had a couple guys that didn't get birds. So that's, uh, we broke our streak finally since 2010.
0: Oh, wow. So I'm really interested in talking about kind of this Arizona draw system that you guys have. I have a buddy that is a, I don't know if you've heard of Corey guide services, but, yeah. uh, Yeah,
1: Corey. I've known him for 25 years.
0: Yeah. So um, a guy that I actually met uh, this last semester named Ian Crow used to guide out there. And he was telling me about the how Arizona elk is just like a once in a lifetime kind of hunt. And so I'm just wondering, um, what advice would you give to someone who's not a Western hunter that's trying to get in, you know, get in there and hunt an Arizona elk? What, What should we be doing to prepare for, you know, an archery hunt or something like that?
1: Well, you definitely need to be applying. So up until a couple years ago, you actually had to have the the maximum amount of points in order to draw that unit. Uh, a couple years ago, they changed it where someone like you with no points actually has a mathematical chance to draw. It's not a great chance, uh, but they give 5% of the tags to people with the most bonus points and 5% of the tags, <coughs> excuse me, 5% of the tags to people Uh, with the most bonus points in that unit. So uh, up until uh, a couple years ago, you had to have the most points, uh, let's say 15 or 18 or 22 points, whatever, for that specific unit. You had to be, as a non-resident, you had to be at the top of that bracket. Whereas now, half the tags go to people uh, in the random pool. So, um, you know, I would say you have to apply... You can't draw if you don't apply. Uh, you've got states like New Mexico where they don't have a bonus point system. That's also a great option. Uh, you know, it's straight across the board. The odds aren't great, but there's no bonus point system. You could draw every year in a row, or you could go five years and not draw at all.
0: Mm-hmm. So, for someone that's you know not used to hunting, you know, out western like Western things like elk or antelope and stuff like that. And I've started to dip my feet into that. I went antelope hunting this year and I really, really enjoyed it. And so it kind of got me into this, uh, I want to spot and stock stuff. I want to do, you know, go hunt in the mountains and stuff like that. So how can we, how can someone that's used to whitetail hunting and, you know, kind of hunting in one spot and just relaxing and, you know, waiting in a tree stand, what do they need to be doing to prepare for a hunt like that? As far as like terrain goes or conditioning or shooting their bow or running or what do you think?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, all of that is good. I think the big thing you have to understand is our country's big, um, it's open, Uh, you got to be able to move, you got to be able to glass, cover country. Uh, It's a true spot and stock hunt. Most hunts in the West are, um, rather than a sit and wait type style, most of our hunts are, you know, using your binoculars mounted on a tripod, up on a high ridge, glassing long distances as far as you can see. Uh, trying to find the group of elk or the group of mule deer or antelope or whatever you're after, and then trying to move, figure out how you're going to move in closer to the animal uh, and get yourself into position where you can get a shot. So with that plays, you know, being good at long range shooting, you know, being able to shoot as far as you can comfortably, uh, obviously in the best shape that you can. So those are all huge things. If you're talking about bow hunting, obviously the same thing, being able to shoot very well. Uh, The further you can shoot, the better your opportunity is, Uh, you know, having good conditioning, having good equipment uh, that allows you to be in the field all the time, Uh, you know, when conditions get hot, when conditions get cold, um, being able to, you know, use a layering system where you can kind of transition from, you know, in the mornings, it could be, you know, 25 degrees and it could be 70 degrees at noon. So you have to be able to regulate your temperature, you know, so gear, uh conditioning uh shooting prowess uh and then glassing ability are all things that that uh you know if you're going to come hunt out west you should work on
0: now i had i had a jimmy hamilton from vortex optics on the podcast and he was kind of telling me a little bit about um, how important optics are especially hunting out west like how how important has that been to you and your success i mean it's
1: paramount it's it's everything um i believe in buying the best optics that you can afford I believe in mounting those on a tripod. We hunt coos deer, which is, you know, a mature coos deer is gonna weigh 100 to 110 pounds. So they're a very small animal. They live in brushy country. We're, you know, we sit in, you know, four, five, six hours in one spot up on a high knob. We may see one buck, we may see 15 bucks. Um, But we spend a lot of time behind binoculars. The more time you spend behind binoculars, the uh, better you're gonna get at it. And I would tell you that, uh, you know, the only way to really get good at it is to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, guys show up and they're just trying to handhold and look in big country. It doesn't work. You've got to be able to sit uh, stationary uh, in either in a chair or on your butt on a pad. Uh, put your binoculars, mount them on a tripod and be able to sit comfortably for hours. Uh, and just let your eyes do the walking, you know, be able to grid the country be able to you know kind of quick scan the country, uh, then once you find a buck, uh, then trying to determine if that's a buck that you want to shoot, um, you know that's that's the next thing is is trying to evaluate with a spotting scope, uh, and see if that's a buck that you want to move in closer and if it's you know something you need to take a better look at. So having a great spotting scope is is huge. I actually glass with uh, 25 by 55 uh, power, or excuse me, 25 by 50 power dual spotting scopes mounted on a tripod. So, um, you know, and I've used the Koa, the 32 power long range Koa. I've used the doctor optics that were, you know, 40, 40 power fixed. Um, but being able to glass long distances, uh, anybody coming out West, whether they're using a 10, 12 or 15 power, or even some of the big binoculars, uh, being able to just sit up high and look for long periods of time are going to allow you to see more game and be more more effective.
0: Now, are you a a Sitka or or is it a Kuyu? Is that how you say it? Which one of those are you?
1: Yeah, so I've uh, been with Kuyu since 2010, uh, was really dear friends with the founder uh, who just passed away in September, Jason Harrison. Uh, I'm a big believer in their gear. Uh, He actually also started Sitka Uh, and in, I believe the end of 2009, uh, got bought out and parted ways with Jonathan Hart and the guys at Sitka. Uh, and then he started, uh, Kuyu. And, uh, so I've been, I was actually with Sitka right before Jason left. And then I hopped on with uh, Kuyu since the beginning and, uh, they make uh, great products and, uh, I use them on all my hunts.
0: That's awesome. So kind of, you, you had said you'd been a a guide full-time since 1999 is that right since 97 i still have my
1: still have my arizona guides license and i've been i guided for 20 years for elk in arizona i still guide for desert bighorn sheep in arizona Uh, my focus uh primarily for guiding is coos deer in mexico gould's turkey in mexico the coos deer hunts take place in December and January, primarily in January during the peak of the rut. We try and hunt those three weeks right during the peak of the rut. And then the Gould's turkey is in April and a little bit in May. Uh, and then my elk, the last two years, my elk uh, time has been spent on the Ot 6 ranch uh, in south-central Colorado uh, where we have about a thousand head of free-ranging elk that come, kind of live on the property and move uh, throughout the property, on and off the property, uh, and um, it's it's a beautiful property. It's got black bear and and uh, turkeys and and mountain lion and mule deer and and elk. So um, we run a string of about 150 trail cameras on the property. And uh, me and Hunter Meekum, who works with me, we basically spend about 75 days in the fall, every day glassing and uh, taking uh, inventory of the elk on the property, watch them, uh, you know, from right when they're rubbing their velvet all the way through the rut and um, even after the rut. So it's it's uh, basically monitor elk uh, for about 75 days, and it's it's a riot.
0: That's awesome. So I'm I'm actually. I think I'm planning on going um, on an over-the-counter archery hunt in Colorado this year. So, what are you? What would you? I know you say that um, you're scouting and glassing on a on a piece of property that you already know of. What what advice would you give to me if I was going to try to go to a unit that I didn't know? What can I What can I do beforehand to look at that as far as e-scouting goes and stuff like that? Terrain. How are they going to be acting in September?
1: Well, the first thing I would tell you is I don't know if you're familiar with Onyx Maps, uh, but Mm -hmm. if you go to onyxmaps.com, get a membership there and uh, take the unit that you're hunting or the area that you're hunting and save those maps uh, offline, basically cache those maps. So when you get there. Uh, you will have full aerial and topo coverage. Not only that, you'll also have private and public property boundaries. So if you're hunting a piece of private or if you're hunting a piece of public, you'll know exactly where you stand. There's a little blue dot and it will show you exactly where you're at. So if you know, if you're getting close to a neighbor's fence line or what have you, that's first and foremost. Then I would get, um, also on the Onyx Maps desktop, you can go on and plot points, Uh, You can plot roads, you can basically do all your research, as well as I like to go on Google Earth and do all my scouting, and you can uh, export from Google Earth onto Onyx Maps. Uh, And so when I show up in a unit, either that I've been to or never been to, I have all the roads in there, I have all the water sources, I have all of the trails uh, in, in talking with people that have hunted the units before, uh, I have areas where, you know, circled where they suggest. I have, you know, X marks the spot on a, you know, water hole uh, or a uh you know a wallow or what have you. Um depending on when you're coming, if you're coming during the over-the-counter archery season, uh, you know, Colorado is one of those that the opportunity is great, the success is not too good. Typically, um, you know, a lot of times you have to get way back in away from the roads. And then sometimes there'll be elk right by the trailheads and everybody's walking past them. Uh, I would highly recommend to backpack and go as deep and as far as you can go. Uh, I would recommend going in an area where you can get up on some either above timberline ridges or, or areas where you can glass across a canyon uh, and be able to use your eyes and spot the elk uh, if you know, and then be able to move in closer to them and, you know, interact with them, whether they're, you know, bugling really well, or if you find a good wallow or a waterhole or a trail or something that you can sit. But um, it's one of those things you're going to have to kind of cut your teeth on. Uh, You're going to have to kind of learn by trial and error. I would try and talk to as many people as you can that have hunted the specific area. Uh, I would then take it a step further and I would try and talk to anybody from the Forest Service any from anybody from the game and fish uh, basically try and gather as much intel as you can uh, find out where people are going to be hunting the most where the most pressure is find out some of those pockets where you know guys say man if you can really get into this basin or this canyon you're probably going to have it to yourself um, you, you know and the other thing is I would try and pick and go at the ideal time I think a lot of people go when uh, the elk necessarily aren't really rutting as good. Um, so try and pick those dates kind of mid, you know, like September 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, somewhere starting in there. Um, I believe the season starts the last Saturday in August and goes to about the 25th or so of September. Um, and, you know, typically that 7th through the, you know, through the end of the season is the best bugling Um You know, so that's, that's some of the advice that I would give you, uh, but plan on staying back in there, uh, try and go ultra light, uh, and try and cover as much country as you can. Don't be as surprised if you pull up at a trailhead and there's 15 rigs parked there. Um, you know, that's just the nature of hunting Colorado. So do your homework and try and find some of those areas that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some guys say if you work really hard you can get into the backcountry and and not have as much people pressure as 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 you would uh you know not want to see
0: so how crucial would you say being able to to call whether it's bugling or cow calling would be to the success of a hunt like that
1: well i think it's 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 a huge part of it. I don't think you have to be able to call to kill elk. I think there's a lot of people that kill elk that don't call. And I think there's a lot of people that shouldn't call that could kill more elk if they (laughs) didn't call. Um, I think the, the lure of, you know, wanting to call elk and wanting to have the experience of the bull, you know, bugling down your, your throat and, you know, down your neck and coming at you charging, is probably, for a first-timer, is probably not going to be too likely. Um, I would tell you there's some great call companies out there. Uh, there's some great videos. There's some great instructional videos. Um, you know, and I, I would listen to Steve Chapel's stuff. Um, he, he makes some great stuff. Jason Phelps makes some great stuff. Um, Carlton, um, it's now called Native uh, out of, out of Colorado, it's, they make some great stuff. Uh, there's a lot of really good companies out there, but the reality is most people probably call too much and they actually kill their chances. Um, so I'd be real realistic with, uh, you know, how you call and, and, um, try and be self-aware of how good you are and how, you know, maybe you should clam it up and, and just sneak in if they're already bugling um you know if they're already going I don't try and call very much at all I try and get close to them and evaluate them uh you you know the I think bugling is uh, very overrated uh I I don't see guys that are you know beginning buglers bugling bulls in coming in charging I just don't see it yeah Uh, you you know you take a guy like Corey Jacobson or Dirk Durham or You know, Steve Chappell or or, um, uh, Joel Turner or some of these guys that are, you know, Bo Brooks that are phenomenal buglers, I think their success of bugling Bulls in is a lot higher. I think uh, if you if you want to be good at something, in my opinion, I'd be a better cow caller than bugler. I think too much emphasis gets placed on bugling, and I think it it kills a lot of guys' hunts, to be honest with you. Uh, if you look at the call the nature of the call itself, the cow call is a much shorter call, whereas a bugle, you know, is a you know ten second call, and most human ears can listen and go, oh, that that's a hunter over there. That's fake where. If a guy just blows a short, you know, cow call um, and it's a very short, you know, half a second to one second call, uh, a lot of times that will f- fool humans. And it, of course, it will fool the elk that w- what we're trying to do. Um, so that's just a little bit of advice there.
0: That's that's funny that you say that about Steve Chappell. I'm going to have him on the podcast, I think, in the next couple of weeks. That's hopefully I can learn something from him, too.
1: Yeah, so Steve and I have been friends for uh, since 1996, uh, and uh, we used to actually be partners in the guide service together. Uh, it was Chapel and Scott Guide Service uh, for probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. He's still a dear friend of mine. He is the, the best elk caller I've ever heard. Uh, I, I always tell him if he would enter the world championships, uh, he would win hands down, uh, he's phenomenal at bugling. He's phenomenal at cow calling. Uh, I've spent lots and lots of time with Steve. Uh, we've, we're still great friends today. He makes uh, great calls, designs great calls. Uh, he's got some great YouTube videos, and, and uh, I'm a firm believer in uh, if you can mimic his sounds and do it exactly how he does it, you're going to have a lot more success. Um, he's a real humble guy. I'm glad you're going to have him on the podcast. Uh, he he does a really good job.
0: That's awesome. So would you say that um, I've heard from people that obviously haven't hunted elk before that elk and turkey are similar in the fact that they're, they are they vo- are more vocal animals than most that we hunt. But would you compare using a cow call, kind of like a turkey call, how a lot of turkey hunters run their hunt by calling too much? And you know how when you're, you're calling turkey, you can be really, really soft with it and you can... You can kind of get that bird really inquisitive, and he get that gets him more curious, and sometimes he'll come in silently. you know would have you seen that play out in the elk was before?
1: yeah, for sure, um, but I think the most important thing, whether you're turkey calling or elk calling, is you sound authentic, you sound real, you right. have the right tonal quality. If you sound good, you can't overcall if you sound bad, you can overcall very quickly, so you know you you take a guy like myself or you take a Steve Chapel or someone that calls very well. I don't think we can really overcall too much because our sounds are good and authentic. If you've got something where your buddies just take it for instance, if you, if your buddy's working on his cow calling or his bugling and you listen to it with your own ears and you're like, yeah, it's good, but it's just not, it's, I can tell it's a human. If you can tell it's a human, an elk can tell it's a human like that. So mm-hmm. That's a good rule of thumb. You have to be self-aware of how good your sounds are. Um, but I've also seen on the other, where people are so afraid to blow a call that they're so passive that, you know, I've seen guys with Turkey calls where they're just yeah. just, just this. And I'm like, the bird doesn't even hear that. Like, yeah. you know, every once in a while, you're going to get a bird that hears that and he wants to come in and check it out. I, I'm not, I, I like to say call with confidence. Um, I just think a lot of people need to be practice a lot more and be a little, a lot more self-aware of how good they actually are. But if you make good sounds, I say, go for it. And, you know, call, you know, call. I've got lots of buddies that they're like, I'm just going to call till I get one to play my game. I would rather have one come in screaming than, then shoot one that's not. So, I mean, there's a million ways to kill an elk, It's just what you're looking for. But, you know, start by uh, checking out Steve Chappell's sounds and, uh, you know, row hunting resources. Chris Rowe does an amazing job, you know, talking about when to call, why to call, the different sounds to make and what have you, and learning, you know, elk behavior. So that's a whole nother aspect of it. You can have great sounds and be calling at the wrong time. Timing whether in any animal you're calling whether it's coyotes, you know, whatever it is, turkeys, elk, timing a lot of it and mixed with good sounds and good timing can can have good
0: results quickly. What would your advice be or how I know you said just said there was a million ways to kill an elk, but how would you do it? If you had brought no calls to the woods for woods for someone that is absolutely the beginning is it just like hey I'm going to try to cut him off exactly where he wants to be I see kind of how he's I know it's going to depend on a thousand situational things but how do you how do you do that for someone that's not really familiar with spot and stalking
1: Yeah so for one like I said I'd use my binoculars and try and figure out and pattern what they're doing I might spend a couple days watching them morning and night watch it, watch where they come into the meadows come out of the timber watch which elk come first, or is it the small raghorn bulls and a few cows? You know, do the cows come first and then a big bull comes? You know, they come out in the same corner of the, of the meadow or the open park uh, morning and night and they exit the same way. And then I would try and figure out, okay, how can I get in position there with the, with the wind, right? Because the wind is the number one most important factor. How do I get into position to be able to ambush them to get a shot? That is the most effective way, in my opinion, is to monitor them and figure out what they're doing before you just scramble in there and try and make it happen. Unfortunately, a lot of guys only have a handful of days to hunt, so they can't sit there for two days in a row and learn their pattern. If you can, learn their pattern, figure out what they're doing, be patient, and then slip in like a predator because you only need one good experience to get close enough to shoot. Uh, A lot of guys, you know, they, they want to be close to the elk all of the time. And the reality is they're going to smell you. uh, They're going to see you. They're going to hear you. They're going to pick you off. Uh, But if you can act like a predator and say, I just need one good chance uh, at this bull or this cow, uh, and my first chance is going to be my best opportunity, then plan accordingly. If you don't have the time for that, you know, sitting water. If it's hot and dry, and you find a wallow, you find where they're, you know, fresh wallowing and they're kicking mud everywhere. Uh, you might build yourself a tree stand, get up in a tree. Uh, you might, you know, that's probably better than a ground blind or building a natural ground blind. Get up in the air, you know, sit up on a big limb and uh, get your scent up off the ground. Uh, and if you find if it's hot and dry, they're going to come to those wallows. If you find a fresh wallow. Uh, if you're hunting in more uh, arid country where there's dirt water tanks, like in Arizona New Mexico, um, find where those elk are watering. And if you can get there, either cut them off to and from the water or sit on the water, that's an that's a, uh, extremely uh, effective and efficient way to kill an elk for sure. Um, if you come with no calls at all, uh, I think you can do very well if they're bugling, if they're making some noise. Uh, if two bulls are bugling back and forth at each other, just slip in there and just keep moving, keep the wind right, and just move in till you're within range. And it's going to take a little bit of practice to be around elk and, you know, close to elk as, as much as you can. Uh, and you're going to learn when you can move and when you can't, uh, they're going to smell you and hear you way quicker than they're going to see you. Uh, if you're hunting over the counter elk in Colorado, you know, those cows, they're all pretty keen on people. Um, so you're going to have to have your game face on, but you know, it's trial and error.
0: So what, a I I was looking at your profile and I listened to your podcast about the bighorn draw today. So what is, what is that like? I've always had a aspiration to kill, you know, a sheep. Um, and it just looks like you guys have some really, really good ones out in Arizona.
1: Yeah, I mean Arizona has uh, unbelievable desert bighorn sheep hunting in Rocky Mountains for that matter. Um, we had I think 111 tags last year, and you know 30 through 30 percent. I think there was 33 record book uh, bighorn shot over 168. Uh, it is a draw, just like the elk. Um, it you can draw with not many points or any points, but the more points you have, definitely the better chance you have. Uh, Because it's a draw, we have, you know, phenomenal quality. Uh, We have some really big rams, and most all of the units in Arizona uh, are are pretty darn good when you start comparing them to other states. The only other state that, you know, um, Nevada has good desert bighorn hunting, and California has uh, good desert bighorn hunting, and New Mexico has has some big rams, but they don't have a ton of sheep. Uh, but it's, you know, the draw is coming up. I believe it's June 11th. Uh, you just need to get in the draw. You spend a hundred and I think it's 170 bucks, uh, for your non-resident hunting license. And that's going to cover your elk. That's going to cover your deer. That's going to cover the sheep, all of the species, not to mention you can come out and hunt you know, with that license that you've already purchased in order, in order to get a bonus point, you have to purchase that license. Uh, so, you know, you might as well come out and hunt archery deer over the counter, uh, and, and use that license that you've paid for. A lot of guys have been putting in for, you know, 15, 20 years and they come out and then some people just, you know, blow the 170 bucks and, and never even come out, but you have to apply. You cannot draw if you don't apply. So, you know, you have to apply. if if you're serious about wanting to kill a sheep. And then the other thing is, like I talked about, we did a two-hour podcast uh, two episodes ago on the whole draw process, and we went through each unit in the state. Uh, We went through the the animals that have been shot the last five years in each uh, unit. Uh, We went through, uh, you know, the tag allotments and kind of gave unit-by-unit breakdowns. You want to pick, as a non-resident, uh, bighorn units with two or more tags because one tag units only go to residents and there's hundreds of non-residents that waste their points every single or waste their pick every single year because they're applying in a one tag unit that isn't even available for a non-resident so you, as a non resident you've got to pick two tag units and more uh, and there's a handful of them uh, again the odds aren't great uh, but you can draw on your very first year Uh, The other thing is you need to make sure you stay away from, you know, two or three or four of the best units in the state, because those will always go to the max point pool and mathematically you won't even ever have a chance to draw. So I talk about on the podcast, some of the middle tier units that give you a chance to draw that don't go in the max point pool. And I mean, you can every year someone draws with zero or one or two points. I took a girl a 12-year-old girl 4 or 5 years ago. She had she had two bonus points and she drew one of the best units in the state.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So you were saying that if you do you you do lose that money on your uh your res or your non resident license if you don't go out and hunt. And what well, all you is- lose
1: it, you lose it regardless. It's basically right. hundred and seventy bucks and that's a part uh you know, you pay to play and that's part of you know the pay to get in to get into the draw. And I think it's thirteen dollars for every whether it's elk, deer, buffalo, turkey, javelina, it's thirteen dollars per species from there um to, to actually apply. And you know, you can draw some great deer tags, some javelina tags, some turkey tags. Uh, and, and actually some antlerless cow elk tags, uh, even as a non-resident, you know, with two or three points, you can draw an archery elk, uh, hunt in, in Arizona to hunt bulls. Uh, and I cover all this on my podcast. Uh, obviously the bighorn and deer draw is coming up uh, June 11th. And, um, I cover all of the draws in multiple podcast episodes. And then, uh, in, in, uh, February, the, uh, elk and antelope, uh, draw is we cover the, all of the, every unit, uh, as well and go through and, you know, break down the odds and what have you.
0: So could you do an over the counter archery mule deer if you bought that, that license?
1: Yeah. So you can hunt coos deer or mule deer. You can hunt in August, December, or January. Um, And so that's what I'm saying a lot. And you can come out and quail hunt. Uh, So with that license that you purchased to apply for some of the big game hunts, you might as well come out and do a mule deer uh, over the counter. Uh, And the thing is you hunt them in January, you hunt them when the deer are Um, our desert deer rut uh, in, in the month of January. And so you're hunting them literally in the peak of the rut. Uh, And you know, it's, it's something I highly recommend.
0: So what got you interested in guiding for coos deer? That's something I really didn't have a firm grasp on even really existed until, I don't know, a few years ago. So what's the, what's the scoop on the coos deer and why do you like chasing those?
1: Well, it's a real spot and stock animal. They're a very wary animal. Um, they're a small deer. They're a beautiful deer, dainty, um, just elegant deer. Uh, but I like chasing big coos deer. Uh, you know, big coos deer, we've shot bucks, you know, in the 130, 140-inch range. We've got, you know, the Boone and Crockett minimum is 110 inches uh, for a typical, 120 for non-typical uh, every year in Mexico, we're killing deer. Or our hunters are killing deer from, you know, every, from hundred inches all the way up to, you know, 130, 140 inches. A couple years ago, we had 141 inch deer get killed. Uh, we've had, you know, multiple 130, 120 inch deer. So, uh, I became fascinated with coos deer, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, it's one of those things, you know. If you, if it, you know, you're probably into Texas whitetail or Oklahoma whitetail. It, you know, I think it's geographic. If you live, you know, there's people in the northwest that are into blacktail hunting, and that's you know, there's dyed in the wool blacktail hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you got guys that are waterfowl hunters. But coos deer, for me, it's the ultimate spot and stock animal. Uh, they're extremely wary and challenging. Uh, and we like to shoot them with rifles. Uh, we like to shoot them between you know 300 and 500 yards. Uh, we like to target big deer, uh, record book deer, Boone and Crockett deer, uh, and we you know that's that's a passion of, of mine and my partners. Of of you know we just love big deer. Uh, it's no different than mule deer, or whitetail, or anything else. Um, you know, typically the bigger the deer gets, the more excited we get, and uh, we, we're fortunate that Arizona and Mexico have, you know, f- phenomenal coos deer hunting. And so it's, it's just a uh, great glassing, great time of year to be out in the woods. So do you have a lot of people
0: that want to bow hunt them?
1: Uh, I'm, I don't focus on bow hunting coos deer at all. I think it's a really inefficient way to kill a deer. Mm. Um, they're, they're so wary and so, um, hard to kill with a bow from a guiding perspective, it's just not cost efficient for me to run bow hunts. There are guys that do it. Um, I prefer to chase big deer with my binoculars and shoot them with a rifle. They're hard enough to kill as it is. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of people that say they want to come bow hunt and I just say, call somebody else. Uh, <laughs> we focus on spot and stock rifle coos deer hunting for big deer. And that's, that's kind of our
0: specialty. So how did, how did you get started in outfitting? What, what made you uh, want to pursue that as a career? I just wanted to hunt more. And the
1: way Arizona's system is, it's hard to draw tags. And so um, our elk hunting was so good, uh, I, I thought, well, geez, if I become a guide, that will give me an opportunity to be in the woods uh, you know, for a longer period of time and, and quote unquote justify it. Uh, I literally spent 20 Septembers in a row taking the full entire month off. You hear guys talk about, oh, you know, I went elk hunting. I would take literally the last couple days of August and I would not come back till the, you know, the first week of October. And I spent 20 years in a row monitoring, chasing, guiding, videoing, photographing elk during the rut in Arizona. And, you know, after I did it the first year, I just, that's all I wanted to do was be in the elk woods in September. So. Uh, My main business is real estate business. That's what allows me to do all the things that I've done. Uh, Obviously, outfitting the podcast, uh, you know, passive income through real estate is uh, what allows me to do the things that I love. Uh, But I always tell people, even if I didn't have real estate, I'd still chase elk for 30 days in September. Uh, just Mm -hmm. like I want to be in the Turkey woods, you know, the month of April, just like I want to be in the Cooster woods, uh, the month of January. So, and then, you know, fish in the summer. So, um, you know, whether I've, uh, been financially successful or not, I'm going to find a way to, to make it happen because I love to hunt and fish.
0: I assume you started out guiding for some other company or person, and what did that progression look like going from working for someone else to opening up your own guide service?
1: Yeah, in Arizona, we're kind of unique because it's not like Colorado or Idaho or some of these states where you have to have a concession and you 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 only have one outfitter in that concession. Uh, Arizona's you know pretty much the Wild West. All you got to do is go down and take a a a, a quiz. Basically, uh, you pay at the time a hundred bucks to get your hunting and fishing guides license, and you're a legal guide. So. Uh, I did, I did work the first season for a guy and took out a couple different hunters and said, I just want to do this on my own. And so I've been doing it on my own. I partnered up, like I said, with Steve Chapel for a handful of years. Uh, and, uh, my, my partner since then and, and with Steve actually is dark Colburn, Colburn and Scott outfitters. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, we've just been, you know, we can guide for any animal in the state uh and with that hunting license uh, or hunting guides license you can basically guide for anything
0: in the state that's awesome so do you have a lot of people that aren't really qualified to be guides since it's so so easy to get that license
1: well i mean it, it's easy for me you know, doing it as long as I've done it to point fingers and say there's people that aren't qualified. But I think that's kind of a loaded question, because I think everybody starts at a certain level. I think there's certainly people and I was maybe accused of it, knowing a lot more than I actually did when I started out, just like anything, you know, you have to learn by trial and error and, you know, you get knocked around a little bit, but, uh, definitely there's a lot of guides in Arizona and, and there's all ranges of quality. There's all ranges of, of amount of time guys spend and, and success and efficiency and effectiveness that, that each guide has um, definitely some are better than others, uh, and some are better at certain animals than others and, you know, great at elk and not so good at coos deer and, you know, or great at sheep and not so good at elk or vice versa. And then there's some guys that are great at everything.
0: So something I think about a lot actually is how much I get to look forward to hunting since, you know, moving down to Austin, I'm living in a city now, and that's going to be the first time I've ever done that. But I'm just wondering, does doing, this so often and and watching clients succeed and stuff. Does that ever, has that ever in your career diluted your passion for being out there?
1: No, I think one of the things that I've been able to do is, um, I fish all summer. Um, I've got a place, uh, between, uh, Glenwood Springs and Aspen, Colorado, which is actually where I'm at now. And I spend much of the summer here, uh, chasing, uh, I like to fish for trout in moving water. I have several rafts and, and boats that I I like to uh, row and put people on fish. And I also like to fish myself. Um, So I get a break and then I do elk uh, basically September and October. Uh, Then I shift focus kind of to mule deer in November. Uh, Then December and January is made up of coos deer. Then there's somewhat of a break. Uh, February and March don't do a whole lot uh, regards to hunting and fishing. And then I start back up with turkeys uh, April and May. And then I'm in the period that I'm at now where we just finished turkey season and I'm moving into fishing season. So the, my point of the whole thing is, um, I'm able to move from season to season and, and because I don't do elk 12 months out of the year or sheep 12 months out of the year, or, turkey 12 months out of the year uh being able to move from animal to animal and season to season allows me to kind of refresh and and and, you know and refresh my batteries so to speak and then uh being able to to um you know fish uh in in the summer uh allows me a little bit to get away from all of the hunting stuff even though you know i'm doing eight at least eight to ten episodes a, a month on my podcast mostly talking about hunting um you know it's 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 something I love just like you do. Um, so it's, it's real easy to do what I do. Uh, you know, if I hunted elk 12 months out of the year for 20 years, I'm sure I'd get sick of it. But since, you know, they only bugle, you know, 30, 40 days out of the year, it's easy to be into it for that time period and then move on. And same with turkeys, they gobble for about 30 days and then you can move on,
0: uh, from there. Yeah. I think variation definitely helps uh, keep your interest up.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if, if, if it's not something you're passionate about, don't do it. I'm a huge proponent of do, do things that you like to do. Uh, and if you don't enjoy it anymore, find something else you do. I mean, I like to ski in the winter. I like to, um, you know, I I love real estate. I love looking and finding deals, hunting deals down. And, um, Mm -hmm. so I, I stay pretty busy.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it. So, with your podcast, what what inspired you to to start that up? Why did you want to start um, having really cool conversations with people around the outdoor industry?
1: So, in uh, January of 2015, I had gotten back from cooster hunting, and I'm friends with uh, uh, Stephen Ranella and Giannis Patellas. Giannis is the producer of the Mediator podcast and the Mediator TV show. Giannis actually. Uh, for five years, was over here in Vale, Colorado. Was uh, my wife and I's fly fishing guide. We'd fish with him once or twice a week, uh, and he actually came down and guided for Dar and I uh, for elk uh, for a couple seasons in Arizona, and then came down and, and guided for us for coos deer in Mexico. And to make a long story short, and. Uh, January of 2015, I just got back from the coos deer hunt and uh, Giannis and Steve Ronella had sent me a pilot episode of the meat eater podcast. And they said, man, Jay, you ought to do a podcast, a Western, Western hunting podcast. So I credit those guys with, you know, I didn't even know what a podcast was. I listened to their pilot episode and thought, yeah, I, this, this might be a great extension of my outfitting business and, and the passions that I have. Uh, and, you know, give me an opportunity to try and portray hunting and fishing in a positive light. So, I mean, within two weeks, um, I had my first, ep- they told me what equipment to buy and I had my first, uh, episode going. Uh, and then very shortly after that, I got a call from gohunt.com, uh, who is still my title sponsor of the podcast uh, and I thought, wow, I didn't even think of monetizing the podcast. Didn't even think that was possible. That's not even why I did it. Uh, and then very shortly, you know, had other companies come on, uh, I've had pretty much the same companies, uh, sponsor the podcast. Now, uh, you know, this last February, uh, had, had my four year anniversary. Like I said, I'm 567 episodes in and, uh, I try and do two a week. And we're just talking hunting and fishing. It's probably 80, 90% uh, hunting. I should probably do more fishing. I get lots of requests for more fishing. Uh, and, uh, it's fun. Like, like, as you know, uh, getting to talk about something you're passionate about, uh, is fun. And, you know, I have a lot that I need to give back for hunting and fishing. So if I can, uh, shed light on any part of Of the outdoors hunting and fishing and, and portray it in a positive light. That's what I'm going to try and do, uh, try and help people as much as I can. Um, you know, uh, some people would think my podcast is a little bit boring. Uh, it's, it's very detail oriented. It's, uh, um, you know, very educational, very informational, uh, try and get good information out of my guests. Uh, it's not an entertaining podcast. I'm not a very funny guy. My wife says I have, uh, a radio voice, not a. I mean, we're doing a video here. I very rarely do video podcasts. Uh, she teases me and says I have a, a radio face, <laughs> and uh, need to, need to stay away from the video stuff. But uh, I've had a lot of fun doing it. it, it it's amazing. I, I think one of the things in starting out so early, when I first started, really nobody even knew what a podcast was. Uh, now all of the great podcasts coming online every day, hunting and fishing, business, all sorts of, you know, every topic, every category out there. I think it's phenomenal because I think people can learn and listen to people that they like to listen to. Uh, you can listen on your mobile device. You can listen to half an episode or wherever and and, and listen to another Completely, you know, a, a real estate podcast, and go back to the hunting one, so you can listen on your own time, and I think that's hugely important.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely thought it'd be a great idea to talk to someone that was nearly 600 episodes deep in a podcast, of something that I really enjoy too. So, thank you for for jumping on again. Yeah, but, no sweat. Um, so what advice would you give to someone? This is my 15th episode. I've already talked to some some really great people. What what advice would you give to someone? Um, to get five, how to get 500 episodes deep. How do you, how do you continue to find things that you're passionate or people to talk to that are really interesting?
1: Well, the first bit of advice I would give you is you got to do what you enjoy, not what you think the listeners want to hear. Um, too many people are chasing what people want to hear and they just burn out. You've, if you're going to be successful in podcasting, you've got to do what you want to talk about. What you want to hear, you got to ask the questions and have the people on that interest you. If you're not interested and engaged in the podcast, then it's 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 going to fall on its face. So I would not try and be the entertaining if unless you're a super funny guy and super entertaining and, you know, you can carry on the whole show. I would try and dictate and let your um, person you're interviewing, let them run, you know, give them opportunity to shine Uh, Try and shy away from being too popular, too fancy to, you know, I always tell my people on my podcast, you're never going to get fancy. You're never going to get popular. I don't want either one of those. Yeah. Um, You know, granted, 567 episodes, 25 million downloads, you know, notoriety recognition that comes with it. You have to be able to embrace that, but don't chase that. Um, I see some people in all sorts of different avenues of social media and podcasts they're trying to be famous they're trying to be fancy they're they're not being themselves um, so you have to be genuine you have to be yourself and in my opinion the the podcasts that are going to be successful or the ones that are going to be around for a long time and have longevity are those that are genuine those that focus on information and those that focus on education i think someone can be only so funny so long Uh, and, you know, trying to chase and be popular and be fancy and it just, it's, you know, I just don't see it lasting.
0: Yeah, no, I just, I found it so interesting that I could have conversations with things that I, and I, and interview people that I don't, over subjects, I have no idea about. I'm not an elk hunter. I grew up in Oklahoma, but it's something I really aspire to do. And so it's so, it's so easy to bring, you know, people that are professional guides that are professional, like you say, Steve, a world-class caller, and I can bring them in. I can have that one-on-one conversation with them. And then I can share that with people. And if people like it, cool. And if they don't, that's fine. I still get to have weekly conversations with people. And I'm getting better at what I love to do.
1: As long as they're bringing you value, meaning your questions and your learning. And and uh, you know, I can already tell you're good at interviewing and what have you. Um, you're gonna do fine. And as long as you're engaged in it and you're genuine and you're self-aware of what's going on and with yourself and your passions, then then you know you be the judge if it's successful or not. Uh, I wouldn't pay much attention to, you know reviews or negative criticism or anything like that because no matter what you do there's always going to be people that uh, one they don't like you for whatever reason they don't like the way you look they don't like the way you talk they don't whatever it is so i've learned a long time ago you just got to be yourself you got to be genuine and uh, you'll do fine
0: thank you i really appreciate that so what uh, what gets you excited about this upcoming season i was i talked to my buddy ian and it's funny. It's so funny to see this um, from two people. One that I was so cl- I lived right next to in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I had no idea there'd be a elk hunting guide in Stillwater. But he was saying that you guys had have have been having some really tough drought years, and that had hurt some of the bulls' antler growth. And so that's just something I wanted to throw in there. But I wanted to ask you what you were excited about um, this upcoming fall.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure, uh, in Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, all across the Southwest, we've been in terrible droughts, uh, last season in Arizona and Colorado for that matter, uh, New Mexico, all across the Southwest Our antlers, whether it be coos deer, mule deer, uh, elk were down. Uh, I like it when the elk bugle hard. I like it when the elk grow the biggest antlers they can. I like it when the coos deer are big. I like it when mule deer are big. Um, and I like it when they rut hard. Uh, and most people are going to tell you the same thing. So when we have wet years, like what we've had and, uh, the elk go into the deer, go into their growing season right now, when their body condition is in good shape, they're going to grow big antlers and they're going to be giant bucks and bulls and rams running around the countryside. And then they also are fleshy and are feeling good. And typically the elk bugle their guts out you know, the deer right on time, chasing does. Um, so on wet years, uh, for us in the Southwest, we're super excited. I'm, I'm super excited. I'm sitting on a bunch of points for deer in Arizona. Uh, not quite max, but you know, I'd love to draw a deer tag on the Arizona strip, uh, uh, this year, you know, I'd love one chance to hunt the Arizona strip and chase a giant, giant deer. Um, you know, from an elk perspective, I think there's going to be some phenomenal bulls shot in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Utah, Colorado this year, because that we've had so much moisture. I think antler growth is going to be at maximum potential. I think they're going to rut, rut their guts out. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things as a hunter drought years are tough because we know the antlers are brittle. They tend to fight and break up. And then, you know, you have a bull bugling and he comes in 30 yards and all of a sudden half his rack's gone. Um, <laughs> you know, and for some people they're like, man, if any bull comes in, I'm going to shoot it. Yeah. I've, I've been spoiled being around elk for, you know, since, uh, 1990s, you know, got my guides license in 97, 22 years of seeing the best elk hunting in the world, right in front of my face. So I, you know, I've shot bulls over 400 inches, uh, with my bow and with my rifle, I've seen some of the best elk hunting that, that, anyone's ever seen because of the time frame and the proximity, you know, where I live in Arizona. So I'm a bit spoiled. I'll tell everybody I'm spoiled. I've seen more elk fighting, more elk rutting, bugling, cow calling. You know, I've been able to experience the best of the best. Uh, So, you know, I'm looking forward to a great elk rut. Uh, Last year on the Ot6 Ranch, it was so dry, 80 year drought. We actually didn't have any water to irrigate in any of our irrigation, uh, uh, pivots. Um, we have three agricultural areas on the ranch. It's a 50,000 acre ranch and just a beautiful property. Uh, this year we're already irrigating. Uh, I feel like the, you know, our, our bulls last year were surprisingly big on a drought year. And I think they have a chance to be even bigger, uh, in Arizona, the bulls are going to be as good as they get. Uh, and you know, that's going to be the case all across the Southwest. So we, as hunters have a lot to be excited for, uh, this coming season for sure.
0: So I think I'm my over the counter hunt. I think I'm going to look around Colorado Springs. So you did have you, do you know if they got a lot of rain up there too?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, most areas in Colorado are anywhere from 110 to 140, 145% of normal. Um, I'm here in Colorado right now. It actually snowed today. Um, oh, wow! and we have five days ahead of us of, of on the actual, when you look at weather.com, there's, you know, snowflakes, it mm-hmm. snowed, I think an inch and a half in Aspen this morning. Uh, so, you know, Colorado Springs is, you know, the, the odd six ranch is not too far from Colorado Springs and they've gotten great moisture. So, um, I think it's going to be a phenomenal season, a phenomenal year, and it's a good time to come out and try your, try your hand at a over the counter, uh, Colorado elk hunt.
0: It sounds great. I'm really excited for it. That's funny that you're up around Aspen. I, I ski in Aspen just about every uh, every winter, and it's I, I love it up there. It's some beautiful, beautiful country.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I get the Premier Pass. Um, I buy the Premier Pass so I can ski uh, Snowmass, Aspen, and Aspen Highlands. And um, I, I love skiing as well. Uh, spent some time up here this winter, not as much as I wanted to, um, but, uh, certainly enjoy getting out, uh, just like most of my fly fishing, you know, I, since I live here in the summer, I can cherry pick those days. And when I spend quite a bit of time here in the winter as well, um, I can go out on those great days and the snow this last year was just phenomenal, had some great skiing. So, uh, when you come out this next year, we'll have to, um, um, go ski some runs together.
0: That'd be awesome. Yeah. I ski snowmass. That's where we ski. And yeah. oh, gosh, it, the snow this year was incredible. Yeah. And it was, it was, a gr- it was a, my, I think it was my third year skiing. So it was a great year to go try some blacks and get, <laughs> get tore up a little bit. Yeah. You
1: know, snowmass is one of those areas that, um, you know, there's no lift lines. Um, they have high speed quads. You can get around the mountain very well. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely some, some expert terrain and, you know, stuff way over my head but there's some great beautiful just good blue cruising runs where you can go fast and make good turns and um you know skiing something i'm passionate about as well uh and you know feeling and making those good turns it's just uh it's just an amazing
0: feeling for sure so i was up in colorado it was uh it was in late march and I was fishing at the Dream Stream. I was wondering if you ever done any fishing at the Dream Stream. I
1: haven't actually fished the Dream Stream. You're talking, about, I believe, about the the Platte River. Mm-hmm. I believe I believe it's the South Platte. Um, I haven't done any fishing there. I I've, I've basically fished in the Roaring Fork Valley, the Roaring Fork River, the Colorado, the Eagle. Um, that's where I've spent a bunch of time, done a bunch of fishing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, all over Yellowstone, uh, all over that area, uh, and then. Uh, every year I'll go a couple times, do the Gunnison Gorge, uh, do the Gunnison for the Salmon Fly Hatch, uh, not too far from my house here. And then, you know, the Green River uh, s- uh, below the Flaming Gorge Reservoir in uh, Utah and Wyoming right there is only four, four right at four hours from my house. Uh, so I try and go and catch as much good summer fishing as I can there. Uh, but I have not fished the um, DreamStream. Um, it's, it's a, it's a wading fishery where you got to, you know, wade. It's a tailwater fishery, which is, you know, phenomenal, giant fish, great hatches. Mm -hmm. Uh, the more I, 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 love fishing moving water and I love my preferences to fish out of a boat. Um, and I like to be honest with you, I've gotten into rowing and, and I bought my first boat in 2010 and, and I enjoy rowing and putting people on fish as much as I like, uh, fishing but I still do quite a bit of walk and wade uh mm-hmm. fishing the property that we live in here uh there's 300 acres and we have access to about 6 miles of of um water that's just phenomenal trout fishing so um yeah it's uh Colorado's a great place to be uh you know for hiking and fishing and hunting uh and then of course
0: the skiing for sure yeah it seems to have it all So that was most of the questions I had here, but I have, I have one more I just wanted to end with and you can answer it as complex or as barbaric as you want. But I just, I just like to ask before I leave is leave every interview. It's just, why, why do you hunt? Why do you continue to hunt?
1: I hunt because it's, uh, something that as a little kid, uh, I was one of those that, uh, My grandma got me Field and Stream Magazine when I was in kindergarten. I really didn't have uh, anybody to take me hunting until I was about 15 or 16 years old. So I was always one of those kids that dreamed about it. And um, I'm as passionate today as I've ever been about every aspect of hunting. I was fortunate to go on two doll sheep hunts last summer, uh, go to Alaska and go to the Northwest Territories. Uh, There's just something about uh, the adventure of hunting uh, the challenge of hunting, uh, you know, I love bulls bugling in your face. I love turkeys blowing your hat off gobbling. And I love the challenge of trying to glass up uh, bighorn sheep and, and deer. Um, but for me, it's all about the sport. Uh, to me, it's all about, you know, a lot of guys like to hunt because of the meat and all that's great. And I like the meat as well, but to me, it's the excitement. Um, it's the, it's the, strategy it's it's all of the things that make up a hunt trying to figure out the most efficient way to uh, get in close and harvest an animal Uh, to me always when you actually kill something everyone's super elated to me it's almost a letdown because of all the all the stuff that leads up to it the preparation um, the strategy um, trying to figure out the best and most efficient way to kill something, and then once you kill it, it's almost a letdown for me. Um, but that's what keeps me going. Uh, I love the um, all of the, you know, how how to do things rather than just you know, uh, drive down the road and jump out and shoot something. I love all of the strategy of how to get in close and how to do it. You know, the most efficient and effective way.
0: That's awesome. So, if someone wants to keep up with you, if a listener wants to check you out, your guide service, your podcast, where is the best place to do that?
1: So, uh, Instagram, um, J- it's at J Scott Outdoors on Instagram. There's a lot of videos and photos on there, and and links to my podcast. Uh, if they want to go to the podcast, you can search anywhere that that podcasts are found. iTunes is probably the number one provider, but J Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast. Uh, You can also go to my website, jscottoutdoors.com. But, you know, any more Instagram is so good, uh, you know, at jscottoutdoors, where we, you know, it's a free platform where you can go on and post photos and videos of things that you love. And you can go and check out other people's photos and videos of things they love. I mean, we live in such an amazing time where it's a, you know, I hear people complaining about Facebook and Instagram and this and that. It's like, Man, we've never lived in a time where we can go share photos and, and share our passions with our buddies and fellow hunters and fishermen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I would say go on Instagram at jscottoutdoors. And, uh, yeah, if I can ever help anybody, uh, definitely let me know. Uh, send me an email, uh, jscottoutdoors at com. I'm happy to help anybody and everybody. Uh, all I want to do is uh, try and further the sport of hunting and fishing. Uh, I don't like pushing my passions on anyone, but if someone wants to learn more, um, I try and do everything I can to help them learn more about, uh, whatever it is they're, they're seeking. So, um, I really appreciate you having me on. I, I wish you the best of success, you know, 15 episodes in, you know, you just have basically a blank slate in front of you and you can do anything you want with this podcast. Uh, and that's the beauty is it's your podcast. So you get to do it however you want. Uh, stay genuine and true to yourself, and uh, you know, do it because you love it, and uh, success will follow.
0: Thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate that. I know you brought me just in an hour a ton of value, and I look forward to not only talking with you again on the podcast sometime, I hope soon, and but also continuing to listen to your podcast.
1: Well, I appreciate the support and. Um, uh, you know, I've got a friend, uh, that that's a big OSU, uh, cowboy, uh, he's older than both you and me, but, uh, <laughs> he, his name's EJ Pfister. He was on the golf team. There, uh, was an unbelievable golfer. And, um, he teaches there at, uh, Oak tree national, uh, there in, uh, Edmond or I think it's Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, but he's a huge cowboy. And so I'll tell him I met another fellow cowboy.
0: Awesome. That works for me. Well, I appreciate it, and I will, I will talk to you again another time. Anytime, buddy. I'm happy
1: to come on. I appreciate you uh, taking your time to ask me to come on, and uh, just uh, God bless you, man, okay?
0: Hey, guys. Appreciate the listen to the Hunter's Advantage podcast.